0: Judges in corporate pockets. Entrenched structural racism. Rubber stamping bad decisions. Legitimizing police lies. The American court system has always been flawed, but never more than now. The judiciary, lawyers, and elected officials have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, yet they're silent about dark money capturing the courts. We won't won't be. be. You're listening to May It Displease the Court. Welcome to another episode of May It Displease the Court. I am Mary, your favorite appellate attorney, although I certainly will not be by the end of this episode. I'm here with my co-host, the person who puts up with all of my read this. Can you believe this shit? Forwards, the rhetoric uh, goddess herself, Dr. Lee Pierce.
1: It's true. I like that title. I will now be using that as my official my official nomenclature. Yeah. Hi. Uh, I'm kind of backseat driving on this one, so I'll kick it back over to you and just
0: let everybody know I'm alive and I'm here and uh ready to kick ass and take some names today. Okay, in this episode, we continue to explore the ways the court system spectacularly fails to achieve justice, how it regularly convicts and incarcerates innocent people based on faulty or incomplete evidence and the enormous time and effort it takes to try to uncover and undo these miscarriages of justice. And these cases harm everybody. The real criminal pays no penalty, is free to commit more crimes, an innocent person's life is disrupted, their course of life is forever altered. You know, they could be kicked out of school, lose their jobs, and the years lost incarcerated and fighting these charges can never be recovered. The public is deceived because it thinks that a crime was solved when it wasn't. It's paying taxes to incarcerate an innocent person for years, decades really, if you look at the statistics. And While there has been some progress with some district attorney's office setting up units to review convictions, for the most part, the system, the DAs and the judges fight tooth and nail to keep these convictions intact. And I wanna know why. So to help us understand, we have an expert with us today and attorney Don Thompson. He's the managing partner of the firm Easton Thompson, Kasparick and Schifrin, which is located in Rochester, New York. He's an award-winning defense attorney with over 30 years experience doing trial and appellate work. He's argued in front of state appellate courts, federal courts, and even the Supreme Court. During Don's post-conviction work, he has achieved exoneration and release from custody for five defendants who were wrongfully convicted. Some were also able to receive monetary compensation for the years that were stolen from them. Don is a special person who doesn't just claim to value human rights. He sacrifices his time and energy to fight for those who have no voice and no money. In my opinion, he is a rare attorney who combines brilliance with integrity and humility. Um, Just... You may not even realize this, but I have been to parties and I'm in more than one with criminal defense attorneys. And sometimes we will, after a few beverages, ask each other who they would want to represent them if they were ever arrested. And Don, I will let you know you are top of the list. So welcome, Don.
2: (laughs) Hello. That was a very nice introduction. I'm going to need a copy of that for my wife. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Well, she can listen to the podcast. So... um, so you regularly handle criminal cases from arrest through trial, right?
2: Correct. Yep.
0: And during that initial phase, it's what we would call the fact-finding process, um where the the courts are trying to determine whether the person that's been charged is actually guilty. But you also handle appeals. And can you kind of explain for listeners, you know, what uh an appeal of a criminal conviction is like?
2: Sure. So an appeal means you've already been convicted uh, and you have the absolute constitutional right to at least one direct appeal to an appellate court to challenge your conviction. Basically to say either uh, the evidence doesn't support the finding that I did it or the procedure was unfair. So that prejudiced me and led to the jury's mistaken verdict here. Uh, That's before a different court than the trial court. Uh, Here in New York, the first level of appeal is to the appellate division, which are all judges who do nothing but hear appeals. They don't hear any trial cases at this point. And the appeal is generally argued to a panel of five of those judges. There's the defense attorney. There's the prosecutor. The judges can ask questions of either side. Uh, and then they reserve decision and they issue a subsequent written decision, usually about four to six weeks after you argue the case.
0: So you and I have the experience um, where we have handled uh, criminal cases, maybe not the same criminal case, but we've handled criminal cases from the bitter, from the very beginning to the bitter end um, where, you know, the appeal is denied. And I want to just focus uh First on the initial fact-finding stage, and just something that drives me crazy uh, is that the courts and DAs and juries have a preference—dare um, I say, deference—to authority figures like the police and uh, you know anybody who works for the government, even you know even the district attorney and the judges. And you know, I kind of understand that this makes sense—that they all would um, kind of. Uh, prop each other up. I mean, cops work on the honor system. Judges work on the honor system. Public officials generally work on the honor system. But I hate that there's this deference because I find it incredibly lazy. It's a shortcut. And it assumes that just because a cop said something or a government official said something that it's true. And I don't think that fact finders should make that assumption. I, I don't think they should assume that it's true. And I think that they need to do the work to figure out if it's trustworthy. And when you, you know, when you're in a court and you're a criminal defense attorney, there's almost this attitude of like, well, you're next to the person who's charged with it, they're probably guilty, therefore you're less trustworthy, and it's this subtext that goes into all of this fact-finding. And once a fact-finder has Uh, just kind of rubber stamped what they say, it's extremely difficult at the appellate level to undo that, if not impossible. Um, What do you think?
2: Yeah, well, we have in New York something that's called a presumption of regularity, which is total bullshit. But the presumption is that if you were convicted, you were convicted properly. Um, It's Mm, more mm -hmm. a device for saying, okay, time for this to be over than it is for saying, hey, let's, Take a look and get to the bottom of this um you know more important to be done than to be right you know at before uh appeal at the trial level you know lots of times there are suppression hearings about why the police officer stopped the car why they searched the car why they got you out of the car you know whether in fact with the windows rolled up at 40 miles an hour traveling in the opposite direction They were able to smell the odor of marijuana before they did a U-turn and pulled you over. Somewhere right now in the U.S., there's a cop on the stand who's lying under oath. And judges let him get away with it. They give great deference to the police officer's explanation about why they stopped him. In fact, there's case law that says uh, that it doesn't matter if the police officer's reason for stopping was trumped up. If there was a legitimate reason, whether it was the police officer's actual reason or not, that's good enough. And the results of the stop do not need to be suppressed.
0: Well, and, and when you're in a suppression hearing and you see it and a cop's on a stand and they say, they, they say, well, I approached the car and the suspect made furtive movements. And for officer safety, I did whatever, literally right. whatever comes out of his mouth after Furtive movements and officer safety, the court's just going to say, okay, fine. That's fine. That's not a violation of, of this guy's rights. And that's my experience. Yeah.
1: yeah and I think just kind of like, again, as a person who knows nothing about the law, just kind of like is good at picking out these rhetorical strategies. Uh, reasonable suspicion seems to be a, a big one too. Like reasonable like reasonable doubt because that we call it strategic ambiguity, right? Words like furtive and reasonable can mean th- they're... Their latitude of definition is so broad; they're basically useless as as adjectives. But they um they've just taken on this role as covering so many. And I think honestly, some of it is just the average person doesn't. You know, we've kind of taught people that the courts are beyond them; that they are these sort of sanctified spaces of pure logic. And so, you know, you have no foothold in those. So when someone says furtive, or someone says reasonable suspicion, or standard of doubt, or whatever, most people just have been trained to assume that whoever is using that language knows what it means and is using it correctly.
0: Yeah. And when you compound that with this idea that police officers are trustworthy and and you should believe what they say, I think it's sometimes it's insurmountable to get beyond that, to get them to think uh, more critically about what's actually being said, which when it says furtive movements is nothing. There's, There's no descriptor there at all.
2: Yeah, I, uh, at one point I had uh, a client who was uh, arrested while walking through an airport because he fit the profile of a drug courier. So I did research on the cases that talk about the profile of a drug courier. Um, it's someone who has luggage or someone who doesn't have luggage. It's someone who's traveling alone or with a woman and a child. It's someone who has bought their ticket at the last minute. Or someone who bought their ticket three weeks ago. You know, the the, the results are essentially, it'll, it'll mean whatever we need it to mean for this particular case.
1: Right. That describes me every time I travel.
2: Yeah, there you <laughs> so go. I'm
1: sitting here like, so
0: that could be basically anyone.
2: There's literally no one that would not fit a part right. of the profile if you pulled yeah. out the right cases.
0: Yep. So that kind of brings me to, you know, you know it's extremely, well, let me back up a little bit. So it's very frustrating as a trial attorney when you have these experiences and I was a, I was a trial attorney before I did appeals. And you know, when you would have these terrible hearings that would go really poorly and you're like, "Oh, we the you know, nobody cared, the judge didn't care, the cop was lying." It, you know, you you make all the objections and you think to yourself, "Well, okay, this is going to get fixed on appeal." And but I didn't handle appeals at that time and you know, the only I just would hand them off to the brilliant appellate attorneys, not that I am now, but I realize this. But now I do appeals, and I get those those, you know, cases, and I try to appeal them. And for the most part, uh, actually so far, they've all been rubber stamped. All of the of the lower cases have been rubber stamped. And it's so frustrating that these factual issues, really just don't get the kind of scrutiny at the appellate level that they should. And the appellate courts are much more likely to look at a judge and say, you know, you misapplied the law or, you you know, so we're going to, you know, you did the law wrong. So, you know, we're going to overturn this or we're going to, you know, change that. But on a factual issue, you know, especially credibility, they really stay hands off. And I think that's, Really lazy i mean i i don 't know Don maybe i 'm being too hard on them, but you know I in my briefs that i 've written, I know they 're not going to really look at those, and I have to try super hard to get them to, so I painstakingly go through the record and I point these things out and it it's it's like they don't care, and i don 't know if they don 't really care or you know what the situation is on that, but I find that incredibly frustrating because it's like well if it if it goes wrong in the trial court what do we do? You know, and, and I think that's where a lot of these cases have come down, you know, that you ended up working on for these Mm -hmm. exonerations is that, you know, there were a lot of factual issues Mm -hmm. that were screwed up at the trial level.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I don't think you're being hard enough on them. Actually. Um, The appellate court has in every case, the ability to examine the weight of credible evidence. And just because the prosecutor uh, admitted some proof, with respect to each element of the offense, doesn't mean that the weight of credible evidence supports a conviction. The language in the appellate cases is that the appellate court essentially sits as the 13th juror and they they are to review the evidence upon request and make their own determination as to whether or not this conviction is supported by that evidence. They check out on that on a regular basis. And when they do address the weight of credible evidence, a lot of times, you know, we just see decisions that say, well, we've examined the weight of credible evidence and we find that it supports the conviction. Well, that's not helpful for anyone. Uh, We used to have uh, an appellate court presiding judge who required in every criminal case that the court write about the facts of the case and explain why they were deciding what they were deciding. We don't have that anymore. We've got a lot of these decisions where they just phone it in. I mean, that is a whole nother podcast about why electing judges might not be the best method of selection.
0: We will bring you back.
2: (laughs) These these folks are not the next coming of learned hand, uh, necessarily. They're the most Mm. politically active individuals who want to be a judge. I think, you know, maybe it should be a disqualifier to be a judge if you want to be a judge in the first place.
1: Yeah, my favorite my favorite expression I keep coming back to from Mary is like the best administrator is a reluctant administrator. Like if you're an eager judge, something's going on.
2: Yeah, yeah. Like eager jurors. We generally get rid of those. Yeah. Guys. Right. We don't want <laughs> yeah. right. You got something up your sleeve.
0: I mean, to be perfectly honest, there there's about two judges that I can think of off the top of my head that were not changed by putting on the black robe. Um which we will we will discuss that off, off air. But, you know, most so, of them...
1: So, so, stupid question from a non-legal person. What is a judge before they're a judge? Are they an attorney?
2: They're an attorney. They're usually a prosecutor. Um, okay. And it, and it used to be, well, well, there was, you know, a bit more uh, political agreement or ability to negotiate on both sides of the aisle yeah. that you would tend to wind up with people who probably should be judges or were better qualified. Uh, Now it's just the most politically active people.
1: Well, that's interesting. So why prosecutors? Is is it just the nature of prosecutors to be, like, if you're interested in that, you're more interested in judginess versus the defender is less interested?
2: No, because the defender won't get elected because our society is so conservative and they're so afraid that the defense attorney is just going to open up the doors. Let let all the criminals out of the house. Although, in in my experience... Uh, defense attorneys make some of the worst judges
0: I mean, I have uh, to agree with you on that
2: yeah. it's oh, it's
0: so it's like oh, you would look at these judges that you know i would have i would vote for you know based on gender or based on race and then it, but i I practice in front of them, and I think you don't know how terrible these judges are and how awful a lot of these who would look good on paper and i would as a you know as a liberal and I'm putting it out there, not that it isn't obvious to everybody um Anyway, so that's uh, a whole yeah. other can of worms.
2: The, the pendulum swings both ways.
0: <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, although I do think that more defense attorneys should be running for judge, and they, and they seem to be. And there's also a, a progressive prosecutor movement, maybe not where, uh, where you practice primarily, but in other areas of the country that I, I think could make some really important um, changes, um, especially prosecutor who have, were defense attorneys, like real public defender, indigent defense attorneys.
2: Yep. I've um, seen that. I may have to move to Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Don, you have um, done work. Well, I want to talk specifically on these, uh, on your five exonerations, which is really impressive. It's, it's really impressive. And you've done some of them with the Innocence Project. Can you mm-hmm. kind of explain for people what the Innocence Project is?
2: Yeah, the, the Innocence Project was started uh, by <clears throat> both Peter Newfeld and Barry Sheck, uh, basically after the OJ case, uh, where in, if you have an opportunity, you can still check it out on YouTube. It's still out there. Uh, some of the best cross-examination ever is Barry Sheck cross-examining the DNA expert for the government in OJ's case. So these guys were early adopters of the DNA technology, just as it was coming into being. And as it was beginning to be a tool, not necessarily to solve cases, but to demonstrate the places where in cases things went wrong, like false confessions or misidentifications, things like that, which DNA could prove, you know, this person is not the perpetrator, but they were identified by three eyewitnesses anyway. How the heck did that happen? And it led to some of all these other um, developments that we have. But early on, um, they started this project with Cardozo Law School to take a look at these wrongful conviction cases uh, to see whether there was DNA that would definitively show whether the person involved was a perpetrator or not. The person who was convicted was a perpetrator or not. And it kind of took off from there.
0: And uh, so how did you get involved with them?
2: <laughs> um I got involved because uh, they contacted me initially, I think because uh, they either heard I was a guy with too much energy or too much time on my hands, Uh, and they had a case up here in the Western District of New York uh, that they wanted to do some investigation on, and they needed local counsel. So they um, contacted me to see if I would be willing to be local counsel, and um, being the good negotiator that I am, I said that I would if they would become counsel on one of my other cases where I was convinced the person was innocent and they agreed. And that was kind of how we started down the road together.
0: So how did you initially get that that other case um, where you had thought that, that um, the person was innocent?
2: The case that they approached me on?
0: No, no, the case that you already had.
2: Oh, the case that I had. Oh, okay. Um, well, the, that case, I actually knew the defendant. Uh, before he, long before he was convicted, he was a friend of my secretary's son. So he'd come into the office and I'd had contact with him before. And, uh, I think I represented him on a speeding ticket, uh, before that. Uh, and then he gets charged with this murder. And, um, I knew just because I knew him, uh, I knew that he could not have done it. And he winds up being represented by a very good, actually public defender, uh, at the time of trial, and represented by a very good public defender on appeal, and was convicted, and his conviction was affirmed, nonetheless.
0: Mm. Um, now, most of these post-conviction uh, exoneration cases are they are they retained, or are they appointed, or are they pro bono? Uh,
2: no, they're they're um, they're never retained.
0: Real quick, Mary,
1: will you explain those three concepts? Because sure. I think I know sure. what retained means, but I'm not sure. Okay,
0: retained means that you pay. That the either the defendant or their family or a benefactor, I suppose, would pay the attorney to represent them. Um, that's how all rich people have uh, have lawyers appointed. Means that the court has determined that the defendant is uh, a poor person, the legal definition poor person, and they retain they pay an appointed attorney um, to represent them. I do appointed case, appointed appeals. And then pro bono is uh, an attorney just takes the case and does it for free.
2: Okay, the wrongful conviction cases are all post direct appeal. So remember that first appeal that you have a right to, the state will pay for your counsel as appointed counsel if you cannot afford an attorney for that direct appeal. After that, the state's done paying. So if you don't have the ability to retain your own counsel, um, you're out of luck, basically. Which is pretty much the case throughout Um, the way I started doing pro bono post conviction stuff was I did some capital stuff in Georgia where people who were facing a death sentence were in the post conviction stage where they're not entitled to counsel to represent them in a state habeas corpus proceeding or a federal habeas corpus proceeding those post conviction things that challenge whether or not you were correctly convicted. And, you know, I was a brand new attorney and I figured, well, you know, I got to be better than nothing. So, you know, I I gave it a shot and represented a few of those people. But um, they um, once people get to that point, if they had money uh, in the first place, it's the truly unusual client who still has money because you've been through a a lot of process. So uh, you've usually exhausted all your available funds as has the family so it's usually a, a pro bono thing so we get now because of in my office because of the cases that i've done a lot of inquiries from people which we kind of refer to as dollar and a dream letters who say you know i i have a post-conviction claim um i'd like you to take a look at it and you know the, we have to screen them very carefully because the further down the road you get the more difficult the system makes it for you to be successful Um, And at some point, you have to essentially be able to demonstrate not just it was an unfair procedure, not just that the jury could have reached a different verdict, but that you're actually innocent of the crime you were convicted of or they don't want to hear from you.
0: So it's really a much, much, much higher standard uh, to you you mean in a lot of instances, don't you kind of almost have to solve the crime to get anybody to pay attention?
2: yeah you have to basically you have to resolve the crime um and, and do it right this time, and the hill gets steeper the further down the road you go, so that's that presumption of regularity again.
0: Can we talk about the Douglas Warney case because i, I this is this has a really interesting aspect to it. I mean they're all very interesting, but mm-hmm. um so uh just kind of give the, the nutshell version of this case, and then I, I want to focus on one particular aspect.
2: Okay, um, so so Doug Warney was charged with the murder of a local activist on New Year's Eve, where um, the the allegation was that he had gone over to this fellow's house and wheedled his way inside uh, after shoveling snow in the driveway to get paid and maybe to do some some odd jobs around the house. Uh, Doug, there were allegations anyway, that Doug was a homosexual prostitute and this guy well, was a gay fellow and maybe he had, uh, come on to Doug or maybe they'd worked out some arrangement. Uh, the, the fellow was after he didn't turn up for a couple of meetings, uh, was discovered in his home, stabbed to death, uh, and, um, Doug's family, which was truly compromised, uh, had a particular brother who called the cops and said, uh, hey, that murder over there on the west side, I think I know uh, who was involved in that, and I think it was my brother. Um, so uh, they go out and, and pick Doug up. Uh, he, at the time, is in the throes, essentially, of AIDS dementia. Um, he was mentally compromised in the first place. They question him for only about three hours or so and produce a confession which is almost completely demonstrably factually incorrect, um, including statements of fact or allegations that Doug could not have known uh, and that were affirmatively not true, uh, obviously constructed by the investigators. Uh, who had not been to the scene themselves, they would have known that the facts were not true had they gone out to the scene, but were taking the information from the officers who had arrived at the scene. And then thereafter, uh, their case was closed, essentially. Now, this was at a time when we had the death penalty in New York. Uh, Doug originally faced the death penalty. Uh, Then they withdrew the capital portion of the prosecution and proceeded with a regular portion of the prosecution uh, going from excellent capital counsel then to uh, almost as good uh, counsel at the public defender's office. And then, you know, after alleging a conflict with the public defender's office to private counsel uh, who was not that good and Doug winds up getting convicted and he winds up uh, spending nine years uh, in jail before, after his appeal is affirmed, and before we we're able to get him released.
0: Okay, so that was a big
2: thumbnail. Sorry,
0: no, I know that uh, people need to know all those details. So when you get the case, you are uh, you want to ask for um, a motion to get DNA tested. There was finger. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But there's fingernail clippings and some blood found at the scene. And the DA's office opposed your motion to test these, uh, to, to do this DNA testing. The court denies your motion. Correct. Which blocks the DNA test. And then as the case is, as this part is being appealed, the DA's office secretly does the DNA test that you asked for, doesn't tell you about it. And I want to know, like, why? What is that all about? Like, is is this some type of control thing? Why would they oppose the DNA tests that you're asking for and then do it secretly without telling you?
2: Now, what happened in the meantime, after we argued and lost uh, the case below, we raised four arguments in favor of DNA testing. Uh, And the district attorney's office had another case, two other cases, actually, uh, People versus Pitts and People versus Barnwell that had raised each of those four arguments. And Mr. Pitts and Mr. Barnwell had also been denied by the lower level courts. Well, the Pitts and Barnwell case was pending at the Court of Appeals after we had lost our case. And it got argued just shortly after our case was argued, um, which um, by the way, our, our case was argued here by Peter Neufeld uh, before a local judge. I've never seen Peter speechless before. But uh, based on some of the judges' questions, he just didn't know how to respond because they were fairly preposterous. But anyway, Pitts and Barnwell get argued at the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals took the local district attorney apart on each of the four arguments. So they knew after our case, which we had you know lost based on the same four arguments, that they were going to lose. So rather than go through the appeal and get spanked again, they decided... You know, we think these arguments are all bogus anyway. We're convinced that Warney is the actual perpetrator. So we'll just test this information secretly and put an end to this. And, you know, then when we get the results that support our position, we'll publish those results.
0: Okay. Okay. A little no- less nefarious, but still not great. Um, and, but then they found out, they did the testing, and actually it excluded him.
2: And here's the nefarious part. They did the testing, it excluded him, and it positively identified an individual who was already in prison for another murder. And they went to talk to him without telling me or the defense attorney, the other defense attorneys, anything about that. And they appointed him counsel for when they went to talk to him. Because their supposition, I'm sure, was that his counsel will tell this fellow exercise your right to remain silent and don't tell them anything. But wow. what happened was uh, the fellow, Eldred Johnson, is his name, um, sort <laughs> sort of a hero of mine. Um, they go out to the institution to talk to him, and his his attorney, who I know very well and I've talked to, says, you know, I. I recommend that you exercise your right to remain silent. Uh, Mr. Johnson, about 6'2 and about 260 pounds, uh, turns to his attorney and said, I recommend that you exercise your right to remain silent. I'm going to tell him what happened. And he does. And he describes how it is that he killed the victim on his own and Mr. Warney was nowhere around and knew nothing about it.
0: Wow. And he had not been looked at prior to this.
2: He had not. No, it, there was nothing to connect him to the crime until the DNA match came back. But once it did, the circumstances of the crime mirrored very closely the murder that he had been convicted of and three other knife involved assaults that he had also been convicted of previously.
0: Okay, but hypothetically, if Mr. Johnson had exercised his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, said nothing, you know, and the DA's office, they hadn't told you. Is there a mechanism where you could have uncovered this if they wanted to keep it under wraps? Since, since you know, I, um, I can't think of one.
2: Right. No, um, there, there was not. You know, I think cynically, I think their supposition was uh, once that took place, they assumed that i would find out in one way or another and i probably would have um so you know they made a preemptive strike basically
0: okay but that we should have procedural safeguards so that this is not it, it isn't there's so much chance that that happened you know that happened to go right um, that easily could not go right. And there isn't a procedural safeguard that could have pre- prevented that. Like, that's this seems like gaping holes in um, ways to protect citizens' constitutional rights, you know, to not be imprisoned wrongly.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, one, one of the things that could have gone very wrong here, which is a thing that's wrong throughout New York, is that, you know, after evidence is introduced at a trial, it goes back to the attorney that introduced it. So, for example, here the DNA evidence that was introduced at the trial initially goes back to the district attorney's office. There is no requirement that they preserve that evidence for future testing. They happened to, so it was around, but as a matter of fact, when they did the subsequent